0: welcome to didache where we are studying to show ourselves approved rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship god in spirit and truth deepening our knowledge of god thereby enabling us to deepen our love for god here is your host justin peters welcome to the program ladies and gentlemen my name is justin peters i hope that this finds you and your family doing well today want to thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. For whom did Christ die? For whom did he atone? Did Jesus atone for all of the sins of every person who has ever lived, is alive now, and will be alive in the future? Did he make salvation possible for everyone? Or did Jesus atone only for the sins of the elect, God's people? This gets to the question of whether or not jesus atonement was a general redemption or a particular redemption more commonly known as limited atonement today it is my great privilege to interview dr mike riccardi mike serves as an elder at grace community church he has a master of divinity master of theology and a phd from the master seminary where he also serves as the assistant professor of theology he serves alongside Phil Johnson. Uh, he and Phil are the co pastors of Grace Life Fellowship at Grace Community Church. And Mike has written a new book. The title of it is To Save Sinners A Critical Evaluation of the Multiple Intentions View of the Atonement. Mike, in this book, has written a theological tour de force defending limited atonement, particular redemption. And I really would love for you to watch all of this interview. It's about an hour and ten minutes or so in length, but it will be worth every minute of it. God has truly gifted him with just a very capable theological mind. He's one of my favorite preachers to listen to. He's in my top five of favorite preachers, and my top five, I don't even know who I would put as number one. It's kind of just all run together, but he's definitely one of my favorite preachers, and he's a great guy. He really is. I've had the privilege of getting to know Mike over the last uh, several years or so, eight, nine or so years, and um, just a really good guy, wonderful husband, father, family man, church man, loves the church, loves the Lord, man of great integrity, so um, I would highly commend him to you. I've got links, again, to all of his books, to some sermons that he has preached on this topic on limited atonement, particular redemption, as well as a link to this book that he's written entitled Sanctification, the Christian's Pursuit of God-Given Holiness. Uh, Sanctification is something that is lacking, sadly, in, in some of our more Reformed theological circles, reformed soteriological circles. So uh, I've read that book. It's it's very good. I commit it to you. So all of the links, all the pertinent links down below in the description. Okay, dear ones, without any further delay, here's my interview with Dr. Mike Riccardi. Well, Mike, brother, thank you so very much for joining me for my podcast today. Looking forward to talking with you about your new book, to Save Sinners, A Critical Evaluation of the Multiple Intentions View of the Atonement. How are you this morning?
1: I'm well, Justin. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. It's a delight to see you, always a delight to talk with you. So uh, I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation.
0: I am as well. I am as well. And uh, I'm so excited about your new book, book, Mike. So, Mike, generally speaking, tell us, what is this book about? It's uh, I know it's dealing with the the scope of the atonement. Uh, limited atonement, people have heard that term probably. Maybe another term that they're not as familiar with: particular redemption, and your subtitle subtitle multiple intentions view of the atonement. What what are we dealing with here?
1: Yeah, so the the book is really a a, a slight adaptation of my PhD dissertation. And when you do those, you know, you can't just say, "All right, I'm going to." I'm going to say the same thing that everybody's ever said about defending the you know particular scope of the atonement uh, that's t- that's kind of what I wanted to do I just wanted to affirm what I think the soundest guys of ch- church history have affirmed about the extent of the atonement but when you do a project like that you know you've got to make a contribution to any kind of some sort of academic discussion and so what I thought was rather than try to say something new or invent something new. I'd, uh, I try to refute something new and vindicate something old. And gotcha. the multiple intentions view of the extent of the atonement is basically, I mean, what I, the way that I would characterize it at is a, a mediating position between, um, you know, classic limited atonement. Christ died for the elect alone. And t- between that and universal atonement, Christ died for all without exception. And they, they basically say, Um, well, Christ has died for all without exception in some sense, but then the elect alone in in another sense. And so they try to have both and they try to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak. And there are a lot of guys that I was around that were around me who found that very attractive, plausible. And so what I was trying to do is I was trying to take what I thought was among the better wrong views on the extent of the atonement and try to show how that proposal doesn't work. And figuring that if I could refute what I think is the best wrong view, that everything, you know, downstream of that is taken care of as well.
0: OK, OK. So multiple intentions view, this is kind of like, as you hinted at a second ago, it's kind of like a something of a almost a Molinistic kind of, a, you know, a Molinism kind of trying to find a middle road between uh, man's free will and election predestination. So it's kind of almost like a middle road between particular redemption, limited atonement and um, universal atonement. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I think that that you have a a lot of that is happening in the the time where this uh, doctrine, you know, kind of has its genesis in the early 2000s. You know, you have a lot of folks trying to present extremes, you know, and then say, I'm the sort of the wise one who kind of walks through the middle. I mean, if there's been debate for centuries on this issue, how is it that we could say that so many good guys were wrong about it and so many good guys were right about it? Obviously, the the existence of the debate means that some people are talking past each other and therefore let's try to pull the strengths of both and eschew the weaknesses of both. Mm -hmm. And that was what this view attempted to do.
0: Okay. All right. So uh, what multiple intentions, exactly what are you referring to? Are you talking about multiple intentions within the triune Godhead as it comes to God's plan of salvation? Um is that where we're talking about? What what kind of yes. motivated you to, go ahead?
1: Yeah, so you know, Lewis Burgoff has sort of framed the discussion in a classic way where he, he talks about how in the intention of God and the atonement really is the heart of of this debate over extent it's it's what did because unless you are like somebody who believes in universal final salvation right right you believe that the atonement actually is limited to those whose sins are atoned for in that sense the atonement is limited to the saved because they're the only ones who are atoned um right and so Berkoff says, you know, that the really what we're getting at is what did God intend to do in sending Christ to die? And what did Christ intend to do in going to his death? And so the intention really is at the very, very heart of it. And historically, the, the two main views have, have said, well, single intention, right? The universal atonement guys have said his intention was to provide salvation for all without exception if they should repent and believe. Um, And then particularists, you know, the the classic particularist side of things has said, uh, you know, the intention of God is to uh, save, to actually and certainly save all those for whom uh, Christ dies and and who are they? They're the ones the father has chosen. And what the multiple intentions view is trying to say is the problem isn't with either of those intentions. The problem is insisting on one to the exclusion of the other. And so they say, why can't it be? that the intention of God in sending Christ and in Christ and dying is both to provide salvation for all and to secure the salvation of the elect. And it sounds very attractive on the, on the front of it on, because then they can appeal to, hey, look, the reason that we have all texts is because of this universal int- intention. And the reason that we have like sheep and, go- and church and, and uh, friends and his people texts are because of that's the particular intention. So it's not this or that, it's both. And again, it sounds really good and, and plausible until you kind of check under the hood and say, okay, does this really does this really work out consistently and genuinely exegetically? And when you do that, I think when you consider what scripture says explicitly is the divine intention in the atonement, mm-hmm. as well as what the atonement actually is, like what it did accomplish, its nature. Then you find that the, the multiple intentions views um, arguments for general intentions in the atonement just don't hold water.
0: Yeah, right. It you run into some trinitarian problems, do you not, Mike? Not, and we're not saying that those who would hold this multiple intentions view are denying the Trinity. To be clear, we're not saying that, but it, it, we do run into some with that view, some uh, pretty pretty significant theological headwinds and difficulties with the triune nature of God. Is that right? I,
1: I would say so. I mean, uh, the folks, the multiple intentions guys are sensitive to that charge and so they aim uh, to give an answer for it. Um, I don't think that answer satisfies. I can get into why if you want. Um, but but the fact that they recognize that that's a problem, like that's something that has to be answered, I think is indicative of, of what you're saying. The reality is, I mean, in classic Arminianism, what you have is, The father choosing those he foresees will believe in him. So that's one set of people. You Mm -hmm. have the son dying for all without exception. That's another set of people. And then you have the spirit working in persuasively to try to woo uh, people to believe only those to whom the gospel comes. Because, of course, the Spirit's not working in all without exception because the gospel doesn't come all without exception. There are plenty of people in history who never heard one word of this Christ who was to have made it possible for them to be saved if they received his message. They didn't ever hear that message. And that by the providential design of God who orders all things in history. So right. on that scheme, you have the Father choosing some, the, the, the Son atoning for all, and the Spirit you know, working in still others. And that, I think, winds up pitting the members of the Trinity uh, at Mm -hmm. odds with one another in terms of what they're trying to achieve in salvation. Whereas I think only a a, a strict particularism, only a classic particularism has it so that the father is trying to save the ones he's chosen. The son is trying to redeem and pay for the sins of the ones the father's chosen. And the spirit regenerates the ones the father's chosen, uh, Mm -hmm. namely the ones whom Christ has died for you need a, a, a perfect consistency there and, uh, you don't get it in any non-particularist view.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, out of curiosity, how did this get on your radar, Mike? What, what motivated you to to write this book and delve into these theological weeds?
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's born out of my love concern and fellowship uh, with, um, the, my brothers here at the Master's Seminary. You know, I came here to train for ministry in 2009, and uh, and have been here, you know, since then. And was surprised to learn that several around here, some including professors, you know, many of the students weren't convinced in like a full five point Calvinism. And that surprised me because I figured, well, you know, Pastor John mccarthur was the right. was the president and now is the chancellor of seminary teaches this and we're all you know sort of in agreement on this and uh but it wasn't so and and uh and so in discussions with my seminary brothers on this there was always this well no i'm not like an arminian like i'm not even they would say i'm not even a four-point calvinist sort of like demarest or millard erickson or or schaefer or something like that but i am i'm a four and a half point calvinist they would say and i was like okay yeah. what well, where do you get that extra? What's the half? And, uh, there, they argue basically for this sort of multiple intentions view. And at least when I was first hearing about it, there were several of of really good friends of mine who would say, Oh, you've got to read this, this guy, Gary Schultz. He's the, he's the guy to read. He, he got to see this handout that Bruce Ware wrote. And then you got to see this dissertation that Dr. Ware's, um, student phd student undertook uh to vindicate it and so i was like okay like let me let me read it like i think that i think that the question for whom did christ die is super important i think it's only the slightest removed from the very center of the gospel because what christ di- did to di- in dying is the, the cross i mean it is the christianity right. and so you're not straying very far from the heart of christianity when you say okay for whom did he do this and so i thought well i, I ought to dig into this. And, um, I, so I read it and I thought, you know, that this is not as compelling to me as I would expect, given the way that people were talking about it. Oh. And, um, you know, it needs, I think it, you know, it, it, it can be, it can be refuted. And so I started talking to people about like just the argumentation. Well, yeah, when he brings this up, you know, I mean, the answer to that is this. And of course those conversations are more simplistic. Uh, and then you hear your brother's objections and. And they, you know, they make you realize, oh, there's, there's, it's more complex than just a, well, this is the answer to that. Let me, I've got to prove that. and Now I've got to try to persuade people. I also read the crossway volume from heaven. He came and sought her, um, and was just like really getting interested in the argumentation, the history, you know, these sorts of things. They, they addressed some things, uh, on the multiple intentions view in there, but I thought You know, if this is what some of my dear brothers are pointing to as as sort of the best defense of the view they find compelling and sort of hindering them from embracing a a classic particular redemption, then I ought to uh, to show that there are good exegetical, biblical and theological reasons uh, to reject that because it really wasn't a case that I think represents scripture accurately or uh, coheres doctrinally. Mm-hmm. In the ways that uh, it needs to, and and so I set myself on that course for my PhD work.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. Well, Mike, let's uh let's go through some of these texts now. As as is the case with many theological debates, uh, you've got you've got your certain proof texts that you go and you appeal to for one side or the other. Let's walk through a few of the of the pros, I guess, and and you and I would share. Common theology belief in this, and but then we're going to look at some of the some of the problem texts, I suppose for uh, for particular redemption. Uh, Matthew twenty twenty eight, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And then related to that, um, Revelation five: worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you are slain and per This is the um, four living creatures, 24 elders saying this, you referring to Christ, of course, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tongue, tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So these texts, Jesus says that he gave his life a ran- as a ransom, not for all, but for many. And he purchased for God with his own blood, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So, Talk to us a little about a bit about the importance of these texts.
1: Yeah, so actually, you know, maybe just a little bit ahead of that, my the central thesis of, of my work is that the debate on the extent of the atonement usually, you know, fosters more heat than light because we too quickly run to the extent texts and, uh-huh. and don't set them in the context of the design and the nature of the atonement. And, and so my argument is when you understand what ransom means and when you understand what purchased for God with your blood means, um, and, and, you know, in addition to other things, uh, the, the understanding of those truths colors or, or sort of shapes your understanding of what the, the extent of those actions can be. In other words, we too quickly run to the scope words in those texts, right. and then say, "Well, many means all, or all means many." My, this commentator says this, and this commentator says that, and it's a, it's game to prove text volleyball doesn't help anything, and you just yeah. wind up going entrenching yourself further in the position you already came with because it's just confirmation bias. The sure. only thing that breaks that stalemate, I mean, literally, I mean, think about Matthew twenty twenty eight, and then First Timothy two six; those are virtually identical statements. He gave himself a ransom for all. He gave his life a ransom for many. Mm-hmm. There, himself his life, virtually similar, virtually the same. Many all, opposite scopes, right? right? And the only thing that's gonna that's going to be a biblical reason why we would say well we need to interpret Matthew twenty twenty-eight in light of First Timothy two, or interpret first Timothy two in light of Matthew twenty twenty-eight is well, what in the context, what in the, in, the, in the lexicography, what in the syntax is going to help me see uh, what, what this atonement is? And then we'll ask, who's it for? So interpret. So the question really is, do we interpret the substance of the atonement in light of the scope? Do we say, well, this, is, this, this text says it's been done for all. Therefore, since all don't receive it, it must not have been done for all, only provided for all. Only made potential for all, in, in, uh-huh. and then they have to respond. Or do we interpret the scope of the atonement in light of its substance and say, "What is this thing?" And given what it is, there, and and then then we ask the question, "For whom is it?" And then we say, "Well, did this thing happen to everybody?" Well, if the mm-hmm. answer to that question is no, then evidently the scope is not absolutely universal. And then the question becomes, "Are there legitimate exegetical reasons?" for interpreting um, universalistic language like all in world in ways that are not absolutely universalistic, like not all without exception. Um, or the, on the other side, the question becomes, are there good reasons exegetically to interpret substance language like purchased and ransom in ways that mean potentially purchased or potentially ransomed or provisionally purchased or provisionally ransomed? Mm-hmm. And, and my argument is No. Ultimately, when you when you actually work it all out, Scripture shuts us up to saying that the atonement accomplished actualities and certainties. And it definitively accomplished what it is that God intended and what Christ intended. And uh, therefore, since it's evident that not all without exception are ransomed, Matthew 20, 28, right? Right. Uh, or First Timothy 2, 6. Since to, to be ransomed means what? To be, to be rescued, to have a payment made so that you can be free from your captivity. Purchased is redemption language. It's redemption from slavery to sin. It's very similar language. You know, what would it mean for me if you were in jail, Justin, for preaching the gospel and your bail was set at $5,000 and Kathy said, Mike, I need you to go bail Justin out of jail. I said, I'm on it, right? And I go. And I, and I go there and I pay the $5,000 for your bail and I leave you there and I go home and I, and Kathy says, is he, is he back? Or, or, did, you, did it all work out? Yeah. All worked out. Great. <laughs> you know, you paid the $5,000 bail. Yes, I did. You know, uh, where's Justin? He's still in jail. Right. right. What <laughs> You right. know, what, does that mean? Have I ransomed you? Have I bailed you out? Have I redeemed you out of your, your slavery to the, prison system? No, I haven't. I've paid a price, but I haven't released the slave or the yeah. captive uh, slave to yeah. sin, right? In the same way, it's wrong to say that Jesus has redeemed anyone who remains in their bondage. It's wrong to say that he's redeemed somebody who ultimately perishes in their captivity to pay the price, but not right. redeem the slave is to be an idiot, is to be, you know, um, I went and you gave away the money, you paid the price, you didn't get what you paid for. What's the matter with you? Yeah. And and we don't think Jesus is so deprived of wisdom in in his uh, paying the price of our redemption. And so when you look at those those texts, it's it fits very naturally to hear them say, "For many, for men from every tribe, 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 tribe tongue, people, and nation," uh-huh. um, and and then you say, "Okay, well, but what about the world texts, right?" And we can go there if you want.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's do go there. And, uh, that's a great illustration, by the way. Um, I listened to a series of sermons that you did on the atonement, um, some months back, year or so back. Uh, and I'll put a link down in the description below. Dear friends, you can watch those and uh, go and listen to them. I commend them to you, but, um, paraphrasing you here, you, you made the point that if, if the, if the, scope of the atonement is universal, that Jesus paid for the sins of every person, every single person who has ever lived or will live, uh, then you've got this curious juxtaposition of, say, like when Christ was literally on the cross, enduring the wrath of God, that you have Jesus propitiating God's wrath, the Father's wrath that burns against sin. And at the very same time, You have people like, you know, uh, Goliath and Pharaoh and, you know, Old Testament people who died, obviously, outside of God's salvation, who are in hell at that very moment, uh, suffering the same wrath that Jesus is enduring himself literally at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: yeah I mean what do you do with that right I mean the what you're you're winding up saying that Jesus is dying to provide the opportunity for people to escape wrath who are already who've already been under wrath for the years that they've died between men and the cross you know that that winds up being I think a hopeless contradiction now yeah. some people will say, look, the way that Christ the way that people were saved on credit, right? Like the way that the way that somebody's sins are remitted before the cross, because God is looking forward to the cross, Romans 3, 25 and 26, right? That right. You know, overlooked the times of ignorance and and looked forward, you know, to a time when Christ would be the propitiation. In that same way, well, God looks forward to that propitiation that provides those unbelievers with the opportunity to believe in the day in their days, right? Mm-hmm. And they didn't, so that's how they get even the provision. But I think ultimately that explanation fails because, look, the you know, if God says here's the promise, believe it. You don't need Christ to die for you in order to say I believe God's promise. Now you need got Christ to die for you in order for your sins to be forgiven, and the and the efficacy and the virtue of that death is what saves anybody in any age. Um, but it, it's not as if all men are sort of locked in the grave and then Christ dies for all. And then everybody's let out and it's an opportunity. Now, now we're back to zero and now we're back to where Adam was. So uh-huh. no, it's, it's everybody's dead in sin, but they still do make choices. They have, you know, desires. They're, they're enslaved to sin, but they're not robots. And so uh-huh. it's not as if when you speak the gospel to somebody, you know, they you know that like before the before like in the old testament times when you were to say trust in the in the coming messiah and the promised seed that will undo the curse genesis 3 15 that somebody would say well i can't do that because christ hasn't died for me yet you know no look look to god's people look to israel look to the the system of of temporary atonement that he's in, instituted that pushes you toward faith in his promises to the ultimate sacrifice and and join yourself to his nation and walk according to his law that's the way that that you were to be identified as a person of God, that 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 doesn't—they're they're not incapable of doing that before Christ dies for them. So it's not like Christ makes somebody more savable than they were before. Yeah. Christ saves the people. I mean, as long as there's a God who can save, people are savable, right? It's right. not as if they have to have their sins atoned for in order to make them savable. Their sins being atoned for is what makes them saved. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah, you can't have. I mean, I just don't think you can have Goliath and Jezebel in hell at the moment, like receiving the wrath of God while Jesus is being said to propitiate that wrath to satisfy that wrath and look propitiation means the efficacious satisfaction of God's wrath that's never it never means anything else uh in the in the scriptures yes. and if if that's what propitiation is then If there is any wrath to pour out on somebody in hell, by definition, that wrath hasn't been propitiated. If it was, it wouldn't be there. Uh, Galatians 3.14 or 3.13, is it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So when did he become a curse for us? On the cross, in that action, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, if I perish under the curse of the law, christ has not redeemed me from the curse of the law so right. you can't call that redemption universal when there are people who don't get it the only way you can do that is to deprecate the the definitiveness and the the, the accomplished nature of that redemption and call it a potential redemption or a provisional redemption which then requires the action or the reception of the believer in order to sort of activate or capitalize upon. And I think that that's not the perfect redemption that the scripture presents to us. Christ doesn't say on the cross, it has begun. Right. Okay. Over to you. He says, it has, it it is finished. It stands accomplished.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amen. It is finished. Absolutely. Well, uh, Mike, I I know the critics watching this and uh, some of my (laughs) vocal critics on YouTube, they're going to, they're going to say, well, what about, so let, let me give you a couple of what about verses. And, uh, there's several we could, we could talk about, but I want to go to two of the, what I would consider the most difficult uh, verses for your position and my position, but you've written a book on it. So, uh, let me ask you about first John two, two first. And then I'm going to go to a verse that I think is even more difficult than this one. First John two, two, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. So that a lot of people say that, how do you get around that? Jesus or or, excuse me, John writing under the inspiration of the Holy spirit says that Christ propitiated not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world.
1: Right. So it's not, I mean, it's obviously not a short answer, but, um, but this is actually one of my favorite particularist texts. Um, I think it, it, establishes particular redemption more strongly than most. Um, So, and it's, it's one of my favorites to discuss. Um, So what, what have we got here? So we've got, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So the question that you have to ask right away is what does the term propitiation mean? And what, one of the things that I do in the book is I, I go through all of those motifs in the atonement, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. And I just say, OK, what does scripture say happens when this is what happens? And for propitiation, like I, I mentioned a moment ago, it's it's the efficacious satisfaction of divine wrath. We see that in Numbers 25 and, and uh, with Phineas. And turning away God's wrath, we see it in Exodus 32 with Moses interceding for the people. We see it in in Numbers, I think it's 16, um, where the plague goes out and they they have to check the plague by making atonement, by making, you know, by kafar, by propitiating. And uh, it says God's wrath is turned away. So when you look at the text on its face, it, it presents you with a problem, right? So if Christ efficaciously satisfies divine wrath for the sins of all people without exception... Well, that means hell's got to be empty. Everyone's right. going to heaven, right? right. But Jesus right. says the, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. Matthew seven, thirteen, and so so no matter what, both the particularist and the the uh, non particularist, the multiple intentions guy, the four point Calvinist, whatever it is, Arminian, we we don't just read this verse in its most superficial sense and become absolute universalist right everybody goes to heaven right we say right. no it, it can't mean that everybody has no wrath it mean and, and the question is okay well what options do you have there one is you can modify this, the the substance of the atonement in light of its scope and say well it says the whole world not the whole world have every have their sins propitiated therefore what propitiation means in this verse is a potential propitiation a provisional propitiation god has made jesus has satisfied the wrath of god such that people might be saved if and then yeah. follow the conditions right and 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 the problem but the problem is you've got no exegetical warrant to to uh alter that term propitiation and read it with that definition anywhere else in scripture it never once means a potential propitiation or the provision of propitiation it always means wrath is definitively turned away right so then the question is, well, can we if we can interpret the substance in light of the scope, can we interpret the scope in light of the substance? And so then when we ask uh, if appreciation means the efficacious satisfaction of divine wrath and not all without exception have divine wrath appreciated, is there a way to understand whole world that that is not absolutely universal, um, but is faithful you know, to the, the intention of the author, to the text, to the context? And I, and I say, yes, there there are reasons to do that. So the the answer would be uh, the whole world here means the elect of God scattered throughout the whole world, right? It means all peoples without distinction rather than all persons without exception. John isn't saying Christ potentially satisfies God's wrath for the sins of both the elect and non-elect. He's saying Christ efficaciously satisfied the wrath of God against the sins of both the believers to whom he's presently writing, to believers in other areas of the world who were alive at that time, as well as yeah. the elect who would become believers as time progressed. I right. say, can you prove that? And I said, I, I think I can, I can give you four reasons for that. At least one is contextual. You, you understand that that John is writing against uh, the influence of false teachers in Asia minor who are sort of incipient Gnostics, not yeah. Gnosticism wasn't quite full-blown until the second century, but you got these folks yeah. who were saying, you know, flesh doesn't matter the spirit is what matters so you right. know, we've got you know you know don't where we've progressed to perfectionism you know and so he's actually saying like my little children if, if any of you sin, sinned you know don't be despondent don't despair we have an advocate with the father right um and other places what else does gnosticism teach elitist like elitist you know yeah. um yeah. elitism knowledge and yeah. And so it says in, in, uh, first, in first John two, like, you know, you don't have any in need of anybody to teach you. You've got the Holy spirit who dwells in in you. Right. Why would he say that? Because these heretics are claiming that they have the secret knowledge that other believers didn't, they're the super Christians. And, and you are at a disadvantage for that. And so John is encouraging these believers who were tempted to despair because they find themselves not to be sinless. And, and so when he writes about Christ's atoning work for them, he he try he's repudiating all vestiges of exclusivism that the that the the false teachers would have insisted upon, and he speaks in the most you know broad of terms. Jesus is not the propitiation for our sins only, whether the sins of the proto-Gnostic elites, rather than the sins of the common Christians like them, rather than the sins of the churches in Asia Minor, rather, you know, rather than the sins of Uh, believers scattered throughout the whole world or whether the sins of believers alive in that day rather than the sins of those who would eventually come to faith in christ jesus is the propitiation for the sins of all of god's elect people scattered throughout the whole world in all times and in all places the universalistic language is there to combat the exclusivism and then you say okay is there any lexical reason definitional verbal reason for you know, inter- interpreting the term "world" less than absolutely universalistically, and, and there are uh, e- even in this in this letter, I could go to several places, but even in this letter, you go to First John five nineteen, right, where John himself says, "The whole world," same phrase, lies in the power of the evil one. And so wait a second, if the whole world must always refer to all people without exception. Right. Does that mean that the Apostle John himself and the believers he was writing to lay in the power of Satan? Mm -hmm. Well, it could be that because he just says in the immediately preceding verse in 1 John 5, 18, that the evil one does not touch the one who is born of God. So the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one doesn't touch the one born of God. The whole world doesn't in that, obviously in that sense, doesn't mean all without exception. It means all without distinction all throughout the whole world. But yes. not an absolutely universal. So that's that's um, what would you call it? Precedent for saying, okay, the Bible doesn't expect us to see world and immediately assume all without exception. Right. One one, one or two more, if you if you're good with it. Um, yeah, absolutely. If you if you notice in First John two two, there's a there's a, a syntax, there's a, a a form of sentence that develops here that's actually strikingly similar to another aspect of John, another passage in John's writing. So if, if you look at it, you've got a comment that ab- about the atonement, Jesus was going to, or, or uh, he himself is the propitiation, right? Right. And then a comment about, uh, or then the word for, for, and then right. a particular group for our sins. And then uh, the phrase, and not for X only, but also for, Right. And not for the nation or not for ours only, rather, but also. And then a larger group for those of the whole world. Uh And and when you look at at the the gospel of John, which is written just a few years before the first epistle of John, same author, same time. Right. Right. You see right. a, a, a similar passage in John 11 verses 49 to 52 where Caiaphas is prophesying about Christ's death he says it's more profitable that one man would die for the people and the whole nation not perish and then and then he, and then it says he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year he prophesied one that Jesus was going to die. there's a statement about Christ's atonement for the word for a particular group, the nation. Is for the nation of Israel,
0: yeah,
1: and then the and then the, the and not for X only, but also, and not for the nation only, but in order that He might also gather into one, and then the, the broader group, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So you have the same exact elements in John 11, 51 and fifty two as you have in First John two two, and they and and they're identical except up till that larger group, and I'm going to argue that that. Those that syntax and those words on the pen of the same author around the same time intends to communicate the same thing. In first John, he says whole world because of the exclusivist false teachers. Uh-huh. In the Gospel of John, he calls the whole world the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so I'm 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 saying yeah. those are the same people, the elect throughout the whole world.
0: Yeah.
1: And then one last reason. The whole point of john's writing this particular passage is to encourage the the sinning believers who are tempted to be discouraged by their own sinfulness in the face of this false teacher these false teachers who say well we don't sin anymore in our flesh and you're not in the elite until you stop sinning and so he says my little children even if these false teachers tell you that sinless perfectionism is possible i'm telling you that even if you do sin we have an advocate with the father And he's the propitiation for our sins. Your failings may be many, but Jesus Christ, the righteous, has fully extinguished the wrath of God against your sins by this propitiatory death. And he presently pleads as your advocate on the basis of that perfectly efficacious propitiation that you be brought home to heaven finally, aside from every temptation and every stumbling. But the problem is, if what he means by the next phrase is that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of all without exception, for those who were in hell at that moment and those who go to heaven, what would stop the believers replying from saying, well, Paul, that's cold comfort. Who cares if he's my propitiation? Not Paul, John, that's cold comfort. Who cares if he's my propitiation? If he's the propitiation for the sins of people who can eventually find themselves in hell, what comfort is that to me? That means that I could wind up going to hell too. You see, right. it makes absolutely no sense to console sinning believers and assure them of hopes of heaven on the ground of a propitiation that Christ has also made for those who, who are suffering the wrath of God for eternity. That would undo the entirety of John's argument. It can't mean, the whole world can't mean, all without right. exception there, without, without turning John's argument into mincemeat. So I think right. that for those reasons... Contextual, lexical, syntactical, and what I would call principial reasons that First uh, John two two is one of the strongest pro particularist texts in the Bible.
0: Excellent, excellent, good deal. That was very helpful. Thank you, Mike. Jesus came to not just to make propitiation possible, but He came to actually and effectually propitiate, and He came to actually and effectually save. Okay, I'm going to give you one more. Second uh, okay. Peter two one. But false yep. prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And, of course, the, the uh, key phrase there, Peter is talking about false teachers who will be destroyed, but they deny the master who bought them. And, and people would say, well, look, I mean, Jesus purchased even false teachers. They deny him, but he purchased them. So help walk us through that text.
1: Yeah, um, for sure. So, I mean, the first thing that I want to say is I, I really want to jump into what it is that bought means, right? And so I want to retreat to this. If, okay. if bought, Alterazzo is referring to the redemption that is often you know, noted in the New Testament by the term exagerazo, so no real intention to, uh, to speak of different concepts there. To, to buy them is the same thing as to redeem them. Um, you know, if that's the case, then all of Scripture's uh, definitions, you know, the definitional weight of the concept of redemption, it needs to be brought to bear on this text. And so like we were saying before, if this means that christ has paid the price for the redemption the release of these captives but they wind up perishing in their slavery then christ has failed to do what it is that he intended to do right, right. unless christ is buying them for a reason other than saving them right that you know which doesn't <laughs> which doesn't make any sense and which scripture never says is the intention for buying or redeeming anybody Right. Um, the reason you redeem somebody, to pay a price for them, is to release them. You know, therefore, um, this this term "bought" uh, can't, ref, you know, m- must refer to those who are eventually saved. So right away, we're confronted with a with a attention with an apparent contradiction. Okay, wait a second. What does it mean for Christ to redeem those who aren't finally redeemed? Does right. it mean that He's redeemed them in a potential way and they've rejected that redemption, or does it mean He's redeemed he, he's he's not actually redeemed them uh in the way that uh, some people think and, and i you know i obviously go with the latter and the question is okay uh but is there a reason that the text gives you for saying the latter is there a reason the text gives you for saying they're not redeemed the way that you would think by sort of just reading that verse on its face apart from any kind of contextual consideration and the answer is yeah there are there are contextual considerations so Not only does Peter say about these false teachers that the master bought them, he's still talking about this same group in verse 20 of 2 Peter 2, when he says that they have escaped the defilements of the world and that they had come to a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, that they have known the way of righteousness. And so I want to submit that in whatever sense these false teachers have been bought by the master, in that same sense, they have escaped the world, knew Christ, and knew the way of righteousness. I don't think it's sound exegetically to say that he was, he's talking about buying these false teachers in one way in verse one, and then that in a totally different sense, these same false teachers have escaped the defilements of the world, knew Christ, and knew the way of righteousness. I think that that's, that that's gratuitous, that's special pleading, it's it's uh, random, and there's no justification for it. So, in whatever sense they're bought, they also escaped the defilements of the world, knew Christ, and knew the way of righteousness. Well, in what sense did the false teachers know Christ, know the way of righteousness, and escape the defilements of the world? The answer is not that they really did, and then they lost their salvation right? If you were to, if somebody was to ask you, if somebody was to say, let me, let me talk about a person. They've escaped the defilements of the world. They've known Christ and they've known the way of righteousness. Would you say naturally that that's referring to somebody who is a believer or an unbeliever? Yeah. Believer. Believer. Sounds like a believer, right? You know? Yeah. But you can't say that with these designations without undermining the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that, that when somebody is saved, God will finish the work that he started in him and nobody will be lost. No, nobody, my father's greater than all greater than all. And nobody can snatch the sheep out of my father's hand or my hand, John 10, 3, 29, right? You know, so, so then the question is in what sense then did these people know Christ, know the way of righteousness and so on? Well, the answer is they professed to be believers even appeared to others to be believers, right. but they weren't ever really believers. They were, verse one says, these false teachers were among you. Verse one says they secretly introduced their destructive heresies into the fellowship. They weren't outsiders who never claimed to be Christians who all of a sudden show up and begin to openly contradict the gospel. These were right. former church members, insiders who strayed from the teaching of the apostles, and they gave every appearance that they had a saving knowledge of Christ. And right. what do they do? They do. First John 2, 19 says they do. They went out from us, but they weren't really of us. Cause if they were of us, they would have remained with us, right. uh, but they went out. So it'd be shown that they aren't of us. Peter sa- can say that they've escaped the defilements of the world, but they never really did escape the defilements of the world. Did they? Right. Peter can say they, they knew Christ, but they never really did know Christ. Did they, they appeared to, it looked like it, it seemed so for a time they professed. So, for a time yeah but in reality it wasn't so yeah and and uh and so what i and so peter is talking about them in a way that people call the judgment of charity speaking to them according to their profession i mean that happens all throughout scripture in in john 12 you know uh it, it says that judas was one of the disciples of christ well, what does that mean? It means he was among the group who followed Christ. But was Judas right. ever really a disciple of Jesus? No. So Peter speaks the same way in 2 Peter 2.1. These false teachers had professed to be bought by the master. They appeared to have been bought by the master, but they never really and truly had been bought by the master. You could paraphrase it as Peter saying these false teachers deny the master they claim had bought them. Right, And so uh, the same way he's saying these, these false teachers claim to have escaped the defilements of the world, claim to have known Christ, claim to have known the way of righteousness, but never really did. Yeah, And so because in Peter's mind, the master buying you is synonymous with being saved, then uh, he, you know, he's saying that they only claimed so, it seemed so, but it was not really so.
0: Right. Same kind of dynamic with Hebrews six. You know, these were people who look like the real deal. They they certainly formed their hands by the fire, but um, but they weren't truly converted. False professors. And
1: you, yeah. And if you say, no, that sounds too strange to me. It sounds like you're manipulating the text. The, the, the response has got to come back. Well, but, you know, the opposite side is going to do that much with saying bought doesn't mean actually paying the price to secure the release of the captain you're gonna you, you have to say at that point that this is the one place where the term where redemption language doesn't mean what it's always meant and people say that there are there are guys in the book explorers folks you know scholars who make that argument you know um they'll say that well redemption in the apostle peter is different than redemption in the apostle paul And the problem is Peter only uses the word group for redemption twice in both of his letters. And that's not enough for a good sample size to say it's deviating from the rest of what the Holy Spirit inspired the other apostles to write. So they recognize that you've got to overturn the Bible's doctrine of redemption in order to go in the other direction. And I would say this is a smaller mountain to climb, though it's technical and though it's complicated, complicated, maybe complex. It's it's less of a, a shorter mountain to climb than... Overturning the consistent definition of redemption everywhere else.
0: Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. All right. Uh, so, Mike, uh, thank you for that. And and let me ask you this question. And critics would say this too. So, well, if you believe in a particular redemption, limited atonement. If you believe in that, then isn't particularism isn't that at odds with the universal? call or offer of the gospel how can we say for example in our preaching and our teaching in our evangelism how can we say that uh god loves you because i don't know that the person i'm talking to is one of god's elect so uh can i say that can i say to someone that that god loves you or uh if if christ only propitiated the sins of his <laughs> of his sheep john ten then um isn't this at odds with the Universal offer and call of the gospel.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, so I mean, it's a good question, right? If 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 Christ hasn't died for all without exception, how can we preach the gospel to all without exception and legitimately mean it? Um, one thing I would say: look, we ought to preach the gospel to all without exception, right? I'm, I'm I know that there are some I would put them in the class of hyper Calvinists who will actually say. Uh, you shouldn't preach the gospel to all. You should only preach the gospel to those who give signs of having been elected, and that's you know contrition and sorrow over sin, whatever these sorts of things. I, I'm I'm not one who believes that. I believe that's that's wrong. I believe that that's what the merrow controversy was about in the uh, 1700s Scottish Church, and and uh, agree with the Merrow men. Um, um, I believe the Merrow men were were classic particularists and not uh, hypothetical universalists, as is sometimes uh, wrongly concluded. Because I think it's totally proper to say uh, Christ has died for sinners, right? And you find yourself in the class of sinners, right? Okay. Um, So one, I believe we should preach the gospel to all people because I think the scriptures command us to do that. Two, I can find instances of the gospel being proclaimed universally right alongside of statements of salvific particularism. In other words, so you have you have Isaiah fifty three, right, where um, it says, "My servant, you know, will justify the many. Um, he interceded for the transgressors. My servant will justify the many and bear their iniquities." Fifty three, twelve. He bore the sin of many. So those, that's those are particularistic particularistic language uh, there in terms of scope. And then in Isaiah fifty five, not very far off from that very discourse, you have, "Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Yes. He bore the sin of many. Everyone come." And then you have like Romans nine, where you don't get a more particularistic chapter in the Bible than Romans nine. He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. There's vessels of wrath and there's vessels of mercy. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, particularism, sovereignty, unconditional election out the ears in Romans nine. And then at the end of Romans 10, what if you have, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And stretching out of the hands is, is a, a way of speaking yes. about inviting in all to come. Right. I say who I want. Right. Hey, I, I'm, I'm waiting all day with my hands outstretched for you. Right. And then very specific, like in the same passage, in Matthew 20, 11, 25, you have Jesus saying, I praise you, Father, Lord in yes. heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them unto infants. Yes, father for in this way, it was well-pleasing in your sight. So I'm, Jesus isn't just stating the fact of particularism here. He's praising God for the fact that he's hidden this truth from, from some and revealed it to others. That's particularism. And then he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. So, that's just an amazing statement of sovereignty in jesus's own prerogative to save whom he wills yes and then the next words are come to me all who are weary and heavy laden." jesus if you're the one who reveals the father to everybody what are you doing inviting everybody to yourself for that those are at odds with one another evidently jesus didn't think so so the people who see uh, you know uh, incompatibilism you know that, that you know between a particular election and redemption and a and a universal gospel call uh, don't have isaiah paul and jesus on their side These, we shouldn't feel that tension they don't so we shouldn't feel right. it right but i mean ultimately you know the an- the answer to this is um, w- what 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 makes an offer genuine is not a coextensive provision what makes an offer genuine is if you meet the terms of the offer every single time you will get what was offered to you. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what makes an offer genuine. Yeah. If, if the gospel is come to Christ in faith and you will be saved. The only way that offer is not genuine is if somebody has come to Christ in faith and was not saved. And that's never happened
0: no. because
1: even the coming to Christ is by the gracious decision and determination of the Father and by the gracious purchase of Christ himself. The only reason anybody repents and believes in Jesus is because Jesus has purchased that repentance and faith for them and that the Spirit puts them in possession on the basis of Christ's good work. So as long as, as nobody's ever come to Christ and been refused salvation, that offer is genuine. It is not a lie to tell every single person in the world if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Amen. It's not a lie to tell anybody that. It doesn't mean that that person is elect or non-elect. You have no knowledge of this, right? right. Even Jesus, who did have knowledge of it, though, preached the gospel to all, right? John 6, 64 says uh, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, right. and he still preached the gospel to all of them. Jesus himself says in John six sixty four that he knew who it was, or John says about Jesus that he knew who it was, who wouldn't believe in him. And yet he called all people to follow after him and, and eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. So um, there, there's no incompatibility here. And what makes an offer genuine is that if the terms are observed, the, that which is offered will be granted. And that happens every time uh, on a Calvinistic particularistic um, handling of, of the gospel. So call all without exception, uh, and trust and, and trust to God that uh, he will save the ones that he's, he's meant to save. We, we, we preach to, to all without exception and, 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 and oh, one more thing. when I mean, you just said can we not say that God loves you or that Christ has died for you? Well, no we don't need to. There's no need to assure a sinner of God's love for them, nor to assure them that Christ has died specifically and personally for them. Because there's nowhere in Scripture that we ever get an evangelistic conversation that has that in it. Nowhere are we instructed to do that in our proclamation of the gospel. Scripture never says, Christ has died for you, therefore believe in him. Scripture never says, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Scripture says, you are sinful. You are beholden to the justice of God, your creator. You You will fall into hell eternally. Unless you turn from your sins and trust in this Savior from heaven, who has satisfied the demands of God's law, who has atoned for the sins of mankind's sinners, of you know, atoned for the sins of His people, and who has risen from the grave in victory, and He calls you. To turn from your sins and trust in him alone. And, and if you do, you'll be saved. It doesn't say he's done this for you specifically. He says he's done it for his own. He's done it for sinners. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he, he comes for sinners, and he does not give help to angels, Hebrews 2:16, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. So mankind, not angels, but seed of Abraham, sinners, not the righteous, but sinners. If you are If you are a member of mankind and you are a sinner, you qualify for the gospel offer. But it doesn't mean that I'm assuring you that Jesus has died specifically and uh, personally for you any more than I'm assuring you that the Father has chosen you from before the foundation of the world. He may have, he may have not. That's not the basis of the gospel call. The basis of the gospel call is that you're a sinner and God has, has sent his son for sinners and so you can believe.
0: Yes. Amen. So Mike, uh I know I know for me, you know, no one learns more from a, a sermon or in this case writing a book than the one who is actually studying and doing the research. So in your process of this, did you did you come to any epiphanies? Uh did you learn anything new?
1: Yeah, I I definitely did. I think one of the things that was maybe the most rewarding was you know, this is this is a debate about the intention of the, the atonement, multiple intentions, particular intention, universal intention. And right. I was shocked as I scoured the New Testament for statements of the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of Christ in dying, purpose for the atonement, the purpose for Christ, the Father sending the Son. How uniformly Scripture presents those those purpose statements as inherently salvific. You know, it is a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's where I got the title from, First 1 Timothy 1.15. Yeah. Not to make the salvation of sinners possible, not to potentially save sinners, not to provide salvation to sinners, but to save them. You know, he he will save his people from their sins. Um, and Christ Jesus has appeared to put away sin. You know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away. The sin of the world, not makes the sin of the world take awayable, right? right. So there are just right. these statements of of definitive purpose that you know. I, I think I can say without concern. You know, I mean, even there, I, I've come to to seek and save that which is lost. We were just talking about that. Yeah, you know, not to seek and potentially save or provide the salvation of. I was struck by how uniformly and consistently Scripture presents the intention of the atonement as exclusively and and. And uniformly salvific and not provisional sake. Yes. And then another thing was um, making sure you put this in the context of Christ's priesthood. Who makes atonement? Priests do. What does the priest do? The priest offers a sacrifice, he slays the animal, and he sprinkles the blood in the altar. He intercedes. Offering and intercession are inextricably linked. You can't a priest who, who offers a sacrifice but does not intercede. Is a bad priest. He's a failed priest, a priest who intercedes with blood on the altar from an animal he hasn't offered. Well, one, that's an impossibility, but that's also an incomplete priest. And what we've, what I found is that wherever the work of a priest, sacrifice and intercession, are presented, they're presented as coextensive and the same side of the or different sides of the same coin. So that it was, it, it cannot be that Christ offers for those for whom He doesn't intercede, and it cannot be that He intercedes for those for whom He doesn't offer and when you have a passage like in John 17:19 or uh, John 17:9 where he says i do not pray for the world but for those yes. who you have given me yes. that's a statement of limited intercession yes. and, if, and if he's interceding only for some who are he calls not the world then he he has to have offered only for some and not the world what would it mean for the, the son to have offered the the precious sacrifice of himself and then to refuse to pr- to plead for them in the courtroom of heaven. Or what would it mean for the son to plead for them and the father to say, no, son, you've offered for them. You've shed your blood for them, but your blood does not avail with me. I will not bring them home to heaven. It's unthinkable. It's impossible. Yes. And then a, a third thing is how important it is to set that priesthood in the context of the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, Hebrews 8. And yes. uh, the, the new covenant, the nature of the blessings of the new covenant are minimally Spirit indwelling, the forgiveness of sins, and um, regeneration, give you a new heart, right? Take out the heart of stone, put it in the heart of flesh. When you go back to Ezekiel 36 or Jeremiah 31 and you read of what the the new covenant was to accomplish, you don't read of provisions or potentialities or opportunities or offers. You read of spirit indwelling, regeneration, forgiveness of sins, And if Christ calls himself the high priest of the new covenant, and if Matthew 26 says his blood is the blood of the new covenant, then he has shed his blood as the high priest for nothing other than new covenant blessings. And so if common grace isn't what the new covenant said it will provide, If gospel offers are what the new covenant said it will, will, aren't part of what the new covenant said it will provide. If cosmic restoration is not part of what the new covenant said it will provide, then all of those things are outside the scope of what Christ has accomplished as the priest of the new covenant, shedding the blood of the new covenant. And if the new covenant isn't universal, then the atonement that establishes the new covenant can't be universal. Those were all, I think, things that were newer to me at the very least, and, and you know came in real bold relief that were super helpful.
0: Amen. Amen. Very good. Very good. Uh, final question, Mike. So these kind of discussions, you know, are, are these just for the academicians Are these just, are these just for the theologians and the seminary professors? You know, are we just talking about questions like, uh, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or uh, uh, can God make a rock so heavy you can't lift it? You know, the, what, what, what are the practical applications? How does this affect us in our daily walk with Christ, in our daily sanctification, in our Christian living, and in our worship? How, how yeah. do these discussions flesh out in those practical day-to-day issues for us? Yeah.
1: As S- Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who was gracious enough to endorse the book, he, he writes on this. He says, you know, how can we teach our people to sing amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, should die? For me, if they don't know what it means that he died for them, if you're confused on what died for means and whether it was for me, right, how is it that you can sing with all your heart amazing love or dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power until all the yeah. ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. For oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer the promise of God, that to yes. the vilest defender who truly believes that moment from Jesus apart and receives. The, we sing of these things. And yes. if we don't know what it means that he died for us or that the redemption is perfect, then, you know, I don't think we're singing with integrity or at least not the full breadth and fulsomeness that a heart ought to be informed with as it raises its voice in praise and doxology. Doxology is rooted in theology. And so if, if you're singing, Oh, perfect redemption, but it's a, it's a redemption that may have failed in its intention. In what sense is that perfect? You know, if, if you know that the, the the blood of Christ, the the blood of the dying lamb is so precious and powerful that it'll make everyone for whom it was spilled, to, to be ransomed and brought home to sin no more in heaven. Well, then wait, but if your theology says there are plenty of people for whom that blood was spilled who will not be brought home to heaven to sin no more, then what are you praising it for, right? Aren't yeah. you really only praising your decision to accept it? Because that's what distinguishes you now, ultimately. It's not Christ's death that is the determinative cause of your salvation. It's your faith. And if in that case, how is it that you do not have, you're not at some point praising an action that you did? You say, well, well, God gave me the faith. I'm praising that, you know, my faith that God gave me. Well, now you sound like the pu- the, the tax collector, or the Pharisee, rather, in Luke yeah. 18, who says, thank God that I'm not a swindler. Thank God that you gave me faith. And I had the good sense to believe God. What does he say to that man? He didn't go to his house justified. Right, right. That, that's scary. You that, know, yes. you, you As a believer, you do not need an atonement that accomplishes potentialities, that is sort of an alley-oop that you slam dunk home with your faith. Tony Allen throws it up. Gerald finishes it off. (laughs) You, as a believer, dead in sin, you need an atonement that accomplishes 100%. That 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 uh, propitiates wrath, that puts away sin, that reconciles to God, that puts away enmity, that purchases the slave out of his captivity. And any time you have something less than that, some of the weight of salvation is then thrust back onto the shoulders of the mm-hmm. sinner. And he must, even if it's now just believe, he must now do something for which uh, salvation may be granted to him. But the the, the particularist says no. The the atonement is perfect. He has accomplished all. He has purchased even the faith that is the instrument whereby you lay hold of these things. And it turns faith not into this meritorious, grounding, procuring cause of salvation. God, God, you have to save me because I believed. And it it returns faith to its proper place as the instrumental cause, that empty channel, that empty hand that simply receives what god has uh, done for him in christ um man there's just so much that i can continue to say but but that i want to be able to sing those hymns with integrity i want to be able to sing Mm -hmm. that my savior is a a mighty savior that he's accomplished all that i'm not in any sense my co-savior and that really it's simply the bankrupt empty-handed trust in a a mighty redemption and a mighty redeemer that that saves me
0: it has been granted to us to believe in christ and to suffer for right. the Amen. Amen. Mike, thank you so very much, brother. This has been a wonderful time with you. Uh, really excited about your book. And um, thank you for joining us. And friends, again, the links down below there in the description to Mike's book, To Save Sinners, A Critical Evaluation of the Multiple Intentions View of the Atonement. Um, Mike would not tell you this, but I will tell you, I think uh, Mike Riccardi is, is one of the finest not only one of the finest theological minds that we have today but he's also just a he's a really good guy i like mike i'm honored to call you mike i'm honored to call you my friend thank you so much for giving us your time today
1: well it's feeling is mutual justin i love you uh, very much and and, and uh, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you either like this or in person and uh guys i'd say the same thing about him
0: oh thank you so much brother Thank you. God bless you and your family. And uh dear ones, thank you. I hope this has been helpful for you. Uh A, a lot of ground we've covered and a lot of food for thought. I encourage you to, to get this book and it's it's written not only for the theologian, not only for the professor, but it's also written for the pastor and for the lay person, the lay person who wants to learn more of God. And that should be true of all of us whether we're in ministry or whether we're um, a plumber or, a, or an accountant or whatever. So um, this is a very, very helpful resource. All the links down below, including to the sermons that Mike preached on the scope of the atonement. All right. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or a comment for Justin or interested in more teaching resources or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.